Lord God, we do pray uh, that we will hear your voice uh, speak to us this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit, your Spirit, will renew us and that we will uh, live our lives to your honor and glory. Amen. Well, friends, what's new often brings uh, a sense of excitement, isn't it? A positive energy and hope. It can even be healing for the body, uh, like um, the new phone that I bought uh, Karen, uh, as my wife, uh, for Christmas. It cured her migraine uh, quite effectively on that particular day. It's more effective than aspirin. Um, but it's got to be an Apple iPhone, uh, because the spying Huawei just won't do, it seems. Um, but we also welcome something new, because we've hit such rock bottom, that the only way is up. Well, rock bottom is where we begin today's story. So let's head straight to the first half of our story, the story of Repentance, verses 19 to 28. You see, under Roman oppression, first century Israel had sunk to the rock bottom. Unsurprisingly, expectations were high for a new chapter in the life of the nation. Such expectations were tied to the coming of the long-promised king, the so-called Christ, that will bring an end to Roman rule and usher in God's new kingdom. It wasn't surprising then that John the Baptist's preaching and baptism by the River Jordan uh, in the Judean wilderness attracted a huge interest from both the crowd and the religious leaders. Huge crowds were streaming out to him from Jerusalem and Judea. People recognized that God was clearly doing something new through John the Baptist. We can say that a revival was felt in Israel. Uh, the, the Baptists' uh, preaching uh, certainly showed all the, uh, the, the hallmark of a true prophet of God. Um, he, he called people to repentance, didn't he? He called people to repentance, to genuine worship of God. In fact, he was the, the last in a long line of Old Testament prophets. After Malachi, after Malachi, and he prophesied about 400 years previously. So something new is definitely happening. But his preaching was also accompanied by water baptisms. It's one of the defining features of John Baptist's ministry, is water baptisms, uh, which is a visual symbol, of course, a visual symbol of cleansing, of washing away uh, the old sinful way of life. So could John the Baptist be the Christ? Well, it was not an unreasonable question, isn't it? Uh, except that he blatantly denied being the Christ. I'm not the Christ, he says in verse 20. Um, and so for, for the religious leaders, uh, they were not sure who he is. So they proposed two more possible and anti-messianic figures. Could he be Elijah the prophet? Uh, as, as the Lord promised in Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, that says, I will send you Elijah 
the prophet before the day of the Lord comes. But um, the Baptist says, no, no, I'm not. I'm not Elijah the prophet. And so a third proposal was, was put forward. Uh, are you then the promised um, that prophet of Deuteronomy 18? And here, of course, Moses prophesied that God will raise up a prophet like him. And this prophecy had often been associated with Israel's deliverance. But once again, the Baptist says, no, I'm not. I'm not. We can go into detail there, but, but we won't. So but, but who is John the Baptist then? Where does he fit into God's plan of deliverance for Israel? Well, after we've had three negatives, now we have a positive ID for the Baptist. Verse 23. Verse 23 says, I am the voice. I am the voice. Only a voice. And he prefers to be known forever as the voice. The voice in the desert. The voice of Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 that we read earlier. It's the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. Friends, after 400 years of silence, suddenly a voice from the Lord. Prepare yourself. Make straight the crooked path. The Lord is coming. You know, put your house in order. We had some guests come uh, over Christmas, uh, so we made our homes ready. Uh, you know, we throw away the old things or hide them under the carpet. Uh, we clear the obstacles from the crowded hallway. Uh, otherwise, they trip people up, isn't it? All the shoes everywhere, the umbrellas, we all know that. The bicycles, the bags. Well, time for change has come. Time for a fresh start, a fresh beginning. Well, what about for us? Is this time, is this New Year time for a new beginning, and as we put our house in order. Is the voice of the Lord stirring us within, stirring our consciences and our beings, and we don't know why? Well, this new year might just be that time to clear those obstacles that are in the way, to put ourselves back in the right track. Well, let's probably briefly consider and now, three possible obstacles to receiving the deliverance uh, that Jesus brings. First of all is spiritual lethargy. Spiritual lethargy. Well, certainly one thing I've discovered as a, as a GP is that people often live in a constant state of lethargy. I'm tired, doctor, is perhaps the most common complaint that I hear. And there is often no underlying disease process. Uh, life is usually good. Um, perhaps we can call it a symptom of spiritual lethargy. 
um, leads to, uh, it kind of leads to a state of spiritual paralysis. So we remain indifferent to spiritual matters, uh, just floating, happy to go with the flow like everybody else. I think I find this quite bizarre, you know, that in a health conscious society like ours, um, where people drink kale for breakfast, um, that we should neglect our spiritual life, um, our souls, our souls are, are neglected, they are disheveled and smelly and infected with scabies. Yet, people resist change. Uh, why? Because change is effort, isn't it? And lethargy doesn't do effort. Life is busy. But um, John the Baptist wants to, to shake us up. Uh, he says, make straight the way for the Lord. Time for change has come. Uh, our souls need a good bath. Because no change leads to nowhere. And nowhere is precisely where Satan wants us to be. It's, it's the sin of indifference. So, so whether we've been Christians for a long time or, or we are still unsure, we are, um, we've not addressed the Jesus question for ourselves, uh, put it in the storage room, it's easy to do, isn't it? I'll tackle it someday. Um, perhaps in this new year, uh, we can uh, look at how we can address that. Let's encourage one another, perhaps, to, uh, to, to take up the challenge uh, that Chris has mentioned, the 2019 uh, daily Bible reading plan as we find out about Jesus and the New Testament, uh, reading the New Testament in the year. Let's encourage one another um, uh, to do this. My own Bible reading has lapsed this year, so I think I'll, enc I'll need your encouragement uh, to do so. And if you find that it is... Um, uh, also good for you, you can join uh, another course, The World We All Want. Uh, again, this is um, a six-weeks course on exploring the major themes in the Bible, the, um, the Bible's big story. Again, leaflets are available uh, at the back. But um, we need to move on now. We need to consider the second possible obstacles to receiving Christ. And I think this is our prejudice against faith. Uh, and I think this is very, very pervasive in our culture. Uh, where people say faith is irrational. It's counter-reason. Uh, not only are we spiritually lethargic, but we are also, it seems, seriously allergic to faith. You know, we are especially prone to the views of uh, outspoken scientists. Uh, if a well-known scientist expresses a view about life, then it's got to be true. He is a scientist. After all, he discovers truths. Now, the question is, is faith irrational, or are we simply prejudiced, like the quantum physicists uh, in the God-particle play? I don't know whether you, you came to it. Uh, it was held here a couple of months ago. She had a strong view on the irrationality of the Christian faith as she argued her case with a vicar. But ironically, at the end, it was 
she, it was her who had not been prepared to subject her own prejudices through the same method of rational inquiry as she would her science. She had closed her mind to the possibility of spiritual truths even before she began. Well, if that is you in any way, well, would you at least make room, make room for the possibility of God in your thinking this year? By shutting God out a priori, that is, before considering the evidence, you have robbed God of his glory as our maker. It's the sin of idolatry, isn't it? It's the sin of idolatry, a worship of nature instead of the creator. Friends, you know, I'm far from the expert on science and faith uh, discussion, but what I've discovered in my uh, studying of this is that the truth is far different from the popular belief that science has buried God for good. And therefore, faith is necessarily irrational. Um, So if you would allow me just a brief detour, uh, let me give you an example from the discovery uh, of the fine-tuning of the universe, that the universe is just right to support life on earth. Uh, It's one of the most remarkable discoveries in the last century. Take the force of gravity, for example. Um, this universal glue that holds things together. The value of gravity is absolutely precise. There is virtually no wriggle room. And um, scientists say that if the value differs by just one part in 10 to the power of 60, that's one part in 10 to the power of 60, which is 60 zeros, just crazy minuscule number, then the world that we know it would cease to exist. The odds of hitting such a number, such a value, if the universe had arisen by chance, has been compared to a person rolling his dice and getting 80 sixes in a row. And that person would have to roll his dice trillions upon trillions upon trillions upon trillions of years before hitting that winning streak of 86s in a row. And we've only considered one constant, that is the force of gravity. It's now known that there are at least, I think, 150 or so fine-tuned values of the universe required to support life. Friends, Julie, we, we cannot ignore these facts and say that faith in a creator God, is irrational. Even famous uh, physicists, such as Paul Davis, had moved uh, from promoting atheism to conceding that the laws of physics seem themselves to be the product of an exceedingly ingenious design. There is, for me, powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. The impression of design is overwhelming. But my favorite quote is, from the late astrophysicist, he's a self-proclaimed agnostic, Robert Jastrow. He said, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself over the 
final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Remarkable. Well, friends, um, we can't stay there. So we must now move on to perhaps the third obstacle to receiving Jesus. And that's our moral confusion. I think that's clear, isn't it, that we live in times of moral confusion. It's not that people don't know what is right or wrong, but they're not sure why something is right and something is just plainly wrong. It seems that our moral judgments have lost their firm biblical grounds. We have rejected God, the moral lawgiver, who has written his moral code into our hearts. And in so doing, what have we done? We've neutralized moral guilt and the reality of sin itself, of course. And we've built for ourselves an alternative ethical framework without the need or reference to God. But such buildings, ultimately, are built on shaky foundations. And um, uh, someone like uh, Lea Libresco, uh, who was a one-time atheist writer, now turned Christian, she was won over to Christianity for this very reason. She said, morality is something that we discover like archaeologists, not something we build like architects. Christianity offered an explanation for it that was compelling. I'm glad for her uh, honesty. Well, friends, linked to this moral values that we have, the morality that we have, of course, is the Christian understanding of sin. The Apostle John, who, who wrote the, the Gospel of John, also wrote the letter of 1 John, says that sin is lawlessness. Sin ultimately rejects God's moral law and ultimately rejects the lawgiver himself. So sin declares its own independence. It's a law unto itself. And lawlessness makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense of our broken relationships, our conflicts, wars, and the stuff we see in the news. It makes sense of my own capacity for thinking evil and doing evil. To deny sin is, is, in other words, evidence of sin itself. It is lawlessness. It is darkness, if you want to use the term uh, in John chapter 1. It is darkness. Now, friends, the voice of John the Baptist calls us to turn to the light, make straight the way for the Lord, remove those obstacles that the light of the world may shine into your darkness. It's time for a fresh beginning, for a fresh start. The voice stirs our consciences to accept the reality of sin in our lives and the helpless state we are in because of it. Friends, we need deliverance. That's what we need. Just like first century Israel needed deliverance from Roman oppression, well, we need a saviour. 
We need a savior from the oppression and slavery of our sins. Uh, Which takes us, of course, to the second half of our journey today, to the story of God's salvation. So let's pick up that story from verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, John the Baptist saw the man Jesus in person. That real flesh and blood that he could see and touch. So as Jesus gets closer to him, as Jesus approaches him, uh, he begins to see a figure of a lamb standing in the middle of that highway. Look, he says, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I find this quite surprising, friends. I don't know if you do. The Christ, that long-awaited king, is a lamb. That's a bit of an anticlimax. The first thing to say about your king when he comes towards you. It's a lamb. I mean, I would prefer to be called a lion myself or a stallion, anything but a lamb. Well, friends, that's because lambs have little meaning to us, isn't it? Um, Certainly not to me as a town mouse. Um, But not so with Israel. The image of a lamb must at once pointed to them, to the sacrificial lamb. The offerings of temple sacrifices, day in and day out, um, would be so familiar to Jewish uh, minds that it would have been impossible to think of the concept of the Lamb of God apart from sacrificial lambs. So Jesus is the lamb, the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, sure. I mean, the the crowd and the priests probably would not have understood the full significance of this verse. But to us, it seems inescapable, is it not, that this verse is connected to the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. Let me read a few verses from that, from Isaiah 53. Verse 5, it says, He, that suffering Christ, that suffering servant, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 7 says, He was led like a lamb, like a lamb that is led to a slaughter. And verse 12 He says, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. So when John the Baptist exclaims, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he sees not only connection with Isaiah 53, 
But indeed, he, he looks forward, isn't it, to what much uh, of the Gospel of John will be about. That is the story of, undeser- uh, story of God's salvation of undeserving sinners through the suffering, through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So Jesus, that sacrificial lamb of God. Yes, friends, I mean, it's, it's, it's a far cry, isn't it? It's a far cry from the Jewish messianic expectation of a triumphant king who will march on, he will rid of the Roman rule and establish the kingdom of Israel. Well, what they had perhaps failed to grasp is that through Jesus, that sacrificial Lamb of God, forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of sins has now come for the whole world, including the world of the Romans themselves. So through Jesus, the Lamb of God, the suffering Christ, forgiveness of sins has also come to us, and it can be ours today. And friends, if we, we are not seeing this as the best news that that ever has been and that ever will be, then we are not aware of sin, isn't it? That's the problem. We are not aware of sin being a destructive force in our personal lives and in our world. We are so much in darkness that we've shut out the light. Receiving the blessing of the cross of Jesus, friends, is, is a bit like being freed from prison. Remember that Charles Wesley's um, hymn where he writes, My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And that's the miraculous power. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Uh, that blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. But friends, as we close, there is another miracle that awaits us at the end of this passage. And that is when John the Baptist testifies to the very identity of the person of Jesus, this Lamb of God. So verse 34, verse 34 reads, I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. I have, I testify that this, this flesh and blood person that that you can see and touch uh, that has just turned up here uh, by the River Jordan to be baptized, this person is the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the man, is the Lamb of God who is also the Son of God. And that's the whole passage, I think, in a nutshell. That Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who is the Son of God. Jesus is not an angel. He's not another prophet like John the Baptist uh, or a holy messenger of God of some kind sent to be a sacrificial lamb. No, he is the Son of God Himself, He is the sinless Son of God, upon whom the very Spirit of God, 
the Spirit of God, of verse 33, came down in the form of a dove and remained. And that's why, friends, that he can be that perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who can bear the sin of many and makes intercession for sinners. By doing so, friends, uh, what, what John the Baptist what uh, John the Baptist here is saying in verse 34 is that I have seen, I testify, this is the Son of God. This verse immediately links Jesus the man to what had gone before earlier in chapter 1. So Jesus the man standing before us now, this flesh and blood person, is that very word, that eternal logos of verse 1. The one who was with God, and who was himself God, and through whom all things were made. He was, he was the Word, he was the Logos that became flesh in verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He was the one and only, also known as the begotten Son of the Father, full of grace, and truth. So Jesus, friends, is clearly incomparably greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not even worthy to, um, uh, to take off the dirty sandals uh, of Jesus' feet. It's the job of the lowest of slaves. And if John the Baptist baptizes with the grubby water from the River Jordan, Jesus, in verse 33, baptizes with the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that cleanses and washes away our old life and gives us a new life. It's a miracle. And I guess this is, um, you know, we can make religion out of this. We can make religion out of uh, the Christian good news. Of course we can. But that's not what the Christian good news is all about. It's not about religion. It's about a new life. It's about uh, a life in the Spirit. It's about being born again. Being a born of God. As um, verse 13 says there in chapter 1, uh, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Born of God. It's a miracle. And that's the good news of the Christian faith. It's the good news of a miracle of Jesus Christ. Well, friends, let me conclude. The Apostle John now has indeed taken us down another extraordinary journey, isn't it, through our passage. We meet Jesus the man in person, the one who actually walked the dusty road of first century Palestine. Now, through this man, we have all received one blessing after another 
grace upon grace. God's promise of the coming king now fulfilled. Deliverance is now freely available to all people, to those who would turn to him in faith. God's salvation from sin is now secured. Why? The Lamb of God, now fixed upon the cross, qualified to pay the price of sin because he himself is the sinless Son of God. What a miracle. What a story. And friends, it can also be part of our story this new year. If we only receive Jesus by faith as our Savior and worship him as our Lord and God, would you make it your story this new year? Friends, let's, uh, let's bow our heads and pray. Lord God, would you help us see our our sins as for what they really are, the destructive force that they are, and that help us to turn to you for help. Lord Jesus, help us to receive you into our lives, to let your light shine into our darkness and that we may worship you as our Lord and as our Saviour. Would you please work your miracle in our lives, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.